Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast with Pastor Joseph Gibson at Cranberry Community Church. We hope God speaks to your heart through today's message. Uh, We're going to wrap up the series today that we're calling Priceless. And what we're doing in this series is we're going through some of the, the core principles and practices of our faith. And we began this series by looking at the, the value of prayer. We talked about how prayer in, in our culture is kind of a last resort, but we need to flip that because that's not biblical at all. Prayer should be the first place we turn, not the last place we turn. So uh, the next week was Mother's Day. We talked about the value of a Sabbath. All the moms said amen. Okay, there you go. So the value of a Sabbath, taking a a day each week to rest. We have been designed by God for a day of rest. So if you you missed that message, go back on Facebook uh, or the podcast and watch or listen to that. And then last week, Renee did an awesome job talking about the value of worship, where she actually came, uh, approached worship from the book of Job, looking at how worship is not about the worshiper, it's about the one that we worship. So uh, if you missed that again, go back and watch that. So the first three weeks of this series have been about different core practices of Christianity. Today's not going to be about a practice, it's going to be about a principle of Christianity. So today we're not talking about the value of something you can do, we're talking about the value of who you are. We're talking about the value of your soul. Uh, so one of our core values here at the, at the church is to be a church that is just grounded in the authority of the Word of God. And when we say that, we are talking about the entirety of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. And, and I'm sure most of you know more than half of that Bible is the Old Testament. Uh, and when it comes to the Old Testament, if I just took a, a poll, I bet everyone in here would fit into one of three categories concerning the Old Testament. You find it either boring confusing or fascinating uh, or the yeah all right Josh uh, or the first two combined a little boring a little confusing uh, um, I get it because for the longest time it was so confusing and when I finally did understand it it was kind of boring uh, but I, I finally got to a place where I found it fascinating and the reason for that uh, is I discovered that, that all of those 39 books written over more than a thousand years uh, by dozens of different authors, all of them point to the person of Jesus Christ. And when you see how all of it points to Jesus and you begin to read these words and say, I see Jesus here, even though it's 1,500 years before he was born, and it begins to fascinate me. Uh, so uh, if you're trying to read the Old Testament and you're struggling, uh, just keep plugging because uh, there are hundreds of prophecies that Jesus fulfills to a T. The Bible is filled with the Old Testament law and, and we find man's constant inability to keep it because it's pointing to Jesus and our need for Jesus and the grace of Jesus Christ. And what I've discovered is sometimes you, you read through like the book of Leviticus or something uh, and it's just all of this in- information that you can't connect with and then boom, you see Jesus in the pages of Leviticus and it's awesome to me. And that's kind of what happened this week in Leviticus chapter 27. Uh, Leviticus 27 is the final chapter of the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament. Uh, And it's one of those chapters that we have a hard time relating to. And that makes sense because it was written, or the estimated timeline of the events of Leviticus was uh, in the 1500s before Christ. So more than 3,500 years ago, on a cultural level, you would not expect to relate to something 3,500 years ago 
uh, and you would be correct if that's your assertion. Uh, because we're talking about before Christ was born, we're talking about before the church existed, we're talking about even before the temple existed, instead they had what was called a tabernacle. The tabernacle was sort of like the temple or the church in a tent. Uh, it's where the presence of God dwelled in the Ark of the Covenant. It's where sacrifices took place. Uh, and now, now this morning, uh, we received tithes and offerings, uh, and many of you gave financially to the church, and I just want to say thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. It, it allows us to do so much that you give here, uh, including keep the power on. But um, thank you so much for giving. Others of you served in different capacities. The worship team was here early this morning. We have greeters. Ron was here making coffee. Uh, we have a, a team in the back that's teaching the kids right now. So we have so many volunteers. Again, I want to say thank you. But in Leviticus, in the days of the tabernacle, uh, people didn't always give money, but what they gave towards the tabernacle, tabernacle was their possessions. Uh, so they gave what they could. Sometimes they would give a, a camel or a donkey or, or animals for the sacrifices. Sometimes they would give their house or they would give a field. Uh, if they were from a home that have, had servants, they could actually give the servant to the, the service at the tabernacle. Uh, you, you may know the story of Hannah, who, who was barren. She was unable to have a child, and she cried out to God for a child. She finally had one, Samuel, and she dedicated him to service at the temple. So as soon as he was weaned, she gave him over to the temple to, to serve, or not the temple, but the uh, tabernacle. So again, this was a long time ago. I don't want your children. But uh, <laughs> what began to happen is... People would give their possessions over to the service of the tabernacle. And, and how many of have heard of buyer's remorse? It's where you buy something and then you change your mind. Well, what was happening, what was becoming really common was donor's remorse. People would give towards the tabernacle. They would give a camel or something, and then they would come back a week later and say, I'm actually going to need that back. And this became so common that... Uh, it started happening so often that Leviticus 27 was given as kind of a set of regulations to discourage people from returning to the tabernacle and asking for their gift back. Uh, and just to give you a, a perspective here, based on the regulations of Leviticus 27, if you came to me and you said, Pastor, I don't have a lot of money, but I want to give you the deed to my house, it's worth $100,000, put it towards the kingdom of God. And then I had a, a meeting with the elders. I said, hey, somebody just gave us a deed to a house worth $100,000. Uh, let's invest it all into missions. And then the next week, the person comes back to me and they say, Pastor, I forgot to talk to my wife about that. So I'm going to need the deed to my house back. According to the regulations of Leviticus 27, I would say you can have your house back for $120,000. Uh, the value of what you have given me plus an additional 20% just to get what you gave back. Now, now what's going on here? Uh, why are they doing this? Is this like ripping people off at God's command? Uh, what's actually happening, happening is an Old Testament version of a New Testament teaching. Uh, the purpose of this is actually to discourage people from changing their minds. And the whole idea was to encourage people to really consider the cost of what you're about to give 
before you give it over to the house of God. The people knew that it would be very costly to ask for that back. So the idea behind this whole thing was think long and hard before you dedicate something to the tabernacle of God, to the service of God. Count the cost. And again, it's an Old Testament version of a New Testament teaching because that's where we see Jesus all the way back in Leviticus chapter 27. Jesus had a similar teaching in Luke chapter 14 that I want to read this morning. Beginning, beginning in verse 27, he said, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. I want to just point that out because we're going to come in just a moment to a similar teaching to that, a similar language. So uh, continuing here, Jesus says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now, there is one major difference between Leviticus 27 and Luke 14 that I want to point out here. In Leviticus 27, the message is consider the cost before you com commit your possessions to the Lord. In Luke 14, Jesus' message is count the cost before you commit yourself to the Lord. What Jesus is saying is there is a cost to authentic discipleship. That there is a cost to following Jesus completely. Because when you surrender yourself to Jesus, you don't approach him and say, Jesus, this is what I have going on in my life. How do you fit in here? You're surrendering everything and you're saying, what do I need to lay down? I'll go where you want me to go. I'll say what you want me to say. I'll do what you want me to do. And there is a cost to this. And he used similar language to this in the Gospel of Matthew. And that's where I want to park in, uh, for a few minutes. So in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said to his disciples, Again, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. He says it here again. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. It's very similar language. Jesus is saying authentic, true discipleship is costly. And in fact, to find your life or to gain life, you actually have to let go of your life. Uh, that, that's part of the, the problem when we come to God is we, we hold our life closed fists. And God is saying, I need you to open it up. And I need you to hand it over to me and trust me with it. That is discipleship, and it is costly. Only this time, Jesus does something different in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus actually justifies the sacrifice. He says, I know it costs a lot, but I'm going to tell you why it's worth it. He says in verse 26, What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul. Jesus acknowledges the cost is great. But he says, if you understand the value of your soul in eternity, then you understand the cost is actually minimal. 
And in fact, he says, you can invest your entire life into gaining more and more and more things, all the money in the world, the possessions, you can gain the entire world, but if you neglect your soul, you have made a foolish investment. So yes, it feels like a costly decision to say, or when Jesus says, I want all of you, every bit of you. It feels like that costs a lot, but but Jesus says, first of all, I want you to consider the cost. Before you say you're going to follow me, I want you to consider that cost. But then he says in Matthew's gospel here, I also want you to consider the cost of not following me. Because eternity is a long, long time. Life here is but a vapor. It's, It's a breath. And we are investing here into an eternity there. So the Bible, it not only calls us to live lives in view of of the eternal value of our soul, but also according to how much God has valued our soul. Because God has actually placed a value on your soul. And I showed you this a few years ago. Uh, There's an Italian artist named Salvador Garo, and he he created a a sculpture. He called it Lo Sono, and it's more well known as the Air Air and Spirit Sculpture have a picture of it on the screen for you. And as you can see, there's nothing there. This is a true story. It's an Italian artist. Uh, and he said, the purpose of this is there's so much energy there. And you can use your imagination. And it can be whatever you want. Not only did someone buy this, this nothing, they bought it for over $18,000. Over $18,000. By the way, I have an exact replica of this. I'll sell it half price. (laughs) Just see me after service. But it's a basic principle of economics. An item is worth what someone is willing to pay. Value is determined by what someone is willing to pay. What is the value of your soul? It is determined by what someone was willing to pay. And Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 7, he said, In Christ we have redemption through his blood. In other words, that word for redemption is we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that determines the value of your soul. In Romans chapter 1, Paul kind of continued with this theme, and he said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, based on everything that God has done in the past, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. He says to be a living sacrifice. That is an oxymoron. You can either be living or you can be a sacrifice. You can't be both. But no, Paul said that's what you've been called to be is you are living, but you're basically living dead to yourself and alive in Christ. You have set your will to the side and said, God, I'm coming under your will. I'm coming under your agenda. Now, I want to show you this. I highlighted that word, uh, that phrase, true and worship, uh, or true and proper worship, because in the Greek language, it's actually one word, uh, and this is probably not a very good translation of that one word. So the word in the Greek language is logikos, which is where we get the word logical. So what Paul is actually saying here is, in view of God's mercy, you should offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. This is the logical response. This is the the reasonable response. This is actually what makes sense when you realize what God has paid for your soul, 
The logical thing to do is to respond this way and lay down everything and live for God. The question is, do we recognize the value of our souls in God's eyes, the price that was paid for your soul, and do we live our lives in response to that? Because the logical response is to surrender everything. And then finally, I just want to talk about this morning. Do we live lives that recognize the value of others' souls? Uh, That recognize that the very same price that was paid for your soul was paid for the homeless man down the street, was paid for every person in Venango County Jail, Every person that you encounter, that same price was paid for their soul. Uh, I wanted to tell you um, a little bit about uh, my weekend last week and specifically one part of it. But um, uh, I wanted to take kind of a weekend of rest, uh, kind of a weekend Sabbath. So uh, my father-in-law, he came up uh, and we grabbed our kayaks and we took them up to Cochranton and we just decided to spend the weekend floating down at our own pace, uh, and fishing. Uh, We were on the water for about eight hours the first day. If you've ever done that float from Cochranton to Utica, it takes about four hours. Took us over eight. Um, We were going as slow as we could. The second day from Utica back to Franklin was six and a half hours. Um, I'm gonna try not to get choked up. Um, we, We pulled into the boat ramp on Elk Street there in Franklin. And there was, a, there was a young couple there, and their son was swimming on the boat ramp, uh, probably about seven years old, about the same of age of, as our kids. And my father-in-law and I, we pulled our kayaks out, and we started to load them up. And uh, there was a commotion behind us. And um, if you've ever been in the, the deep end of a swimming pool, and you're just walking backwards because you have no traction and you can't keep yourself from going deeper. Uh, that's happening to this seven-year-old boy. He's, he's going deeper and deeper down the boat ramp. And his parents, uh, I couldn't believe what was happening because they're standing at the water's edge and they're just yelling at their son, stop doing that. You can't swim. Stop doing that. You're going to drown. You can't swim, and and the boy is going further and further, and they're not even going into the water. They're just standing there, and the boy, the water is to his neck now, and they're just standing there yelling, stop doing that, you can't swim. So finally, I drop everything, and I say, I'll get him, and I run into the water, and by the time I get to the boy, his head is six inches underwater, and his arm is just sticking up out of the water. And I pull him up, and I hand him to his mom, She says, thank you for saving my child. And I kid you not, the dad, I'm assuming it was the dad, he says to me, you know, I would have went in after him, but I was holding the dogs. When they left, I asked my father-in-law, did that really just happen? Were they just going to stand here and yell at their son for drowning? And he said to me, you know, if it weren't so serious, it would be kind of comical 
that someone would do that and just watch their son as he's near drowning. And I knew that this was a God thing, so I kind of started asking God, why, why did this happen? And I'm going to step on your toes a little, and it's because God stepped on mine. I felt like God told me right in that moment, I wanted to give you an image of what I see in my church. That we have been become so good at pointing out that we live in a lost and dying world. And we have been so immobile in doing anything about it. We will look at the world around us and we'll say, stop doing that. Stop, you're going to die and go to hell. Stop it. But we have the message of salvation. And we don't give them that part. And I feel like God is saying to us, do you understand how I value them? And I value their souls and their souls. So many people are going off to eternity without Christ, without God. And all we're doing is pointing it out and saying, do you understand that that you're dying right now? That person's dying and this person is dying. And what God has done is he has given us the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And he is calling us to not stand at the water's edge and just say that it's happening, but to run into the water and start grabbing people and saying, you need to know Jesus Christ. Brian, can you come up, please? Um, When we, before we even put in the water in Cockerton, I I told my father-in-law, I said, I have one goal on this, this trip, um, which you would think to be to catch fish. <laughs> Fortunately, it was not that. Uh, I said, my only goal is to never at any point feel like I'm in a hurry or in a rush. Uh, because uh, my life, as probably all of your lives, sometimes just feels like it is rushing nonstop. That it is nonstop rushing and hurrying. So I told him, this trip for me is about never being in a hurry about taking time to intentionally rest. And we did really well with that, as I pointed out. Until about the time we got to to Franklin in our kayaks there behind the the steel plants. And my father-in-law just started paddling like a madman. And I'm getting kind of frustrated because this was not part of the deal. I can't keep up with him. And and for about two hours straight, we paddled and paddled as quickly as we could. And I didn't understand why are we paddling so quickly. And now I wonder what would have happened to this child if we hadn't paddled so quickly. And I think there's something to be said about recognizing that in our lives, God's timing is perfect. It's not always our timing. But he is never late. He is never early. He is just on time. And he has placed you where you are and when you are because his timing is perfect. And you are needed in the lives of the people that God has placed you there for. God's timing for you is perfect, church. Can you stand with me? You would close your eyes. 
Jesus, we never want to be a people or a church or individuals who go through the motions of Christianity. You have sent us, God, into this world as your ambassadors, and I pray that we would see ourselves that way. I pray that you would give us boldness to speak. That you would open our eyes to see every opportunity, God. Church, as Brian leads us, I just want to encourage you to, to ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. Lord, would you, would you reveal things to us that we didn't even know were there today? If there are unpure motives, agendas, anything that is not of your kingdom, Lord, would you reveal those to us this morning? Lord, I pray that we would see your gospel and your word for what it is, and that is good news. I pray that it would be a fire in our bones, Lord, that we have to get out and we have to share. Lord, that at no point we would feel this as an obligation, but we would understand it as an opportunity that we have been blessed, Lord, to know you and to share with others about you. And I pray again, Lord, for your boldness as we leave this place to walk in your calling and to share your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, thank you so much for being here. A small group for, for ladies on Wednesday morning, for everyone on Wednesday night and Saturday night. And uh, have a good week. Coffee weather. Thank you for listening to this week's message. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for a new message every single week. And as always, from all of us at Cranberry Community Church, may God bless you.